slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth, and he began to... And he began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Amen. And as they went on their way, they came unto certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they both went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, preached in all the cities, till he came to Caesarea. Let me see Now lately, because of seeming spiritual movements that have been taking place, skeptics of the movements have been using the term ordinary means. I don't know if you've heard that term, ordinary means. And when we speak of ordinary means, we mean what we mean is that God uses the ordinary means of grace to impart spiritual life to individuals, to grant them the new birth and to bring them to belief or to awaken slumbering saints. This is opposed to the unusual or inordinate means employed by some in order to fabricate an awakening or fabricate a revival. Now, the word ordinary can also mean usual or normal. It's also important to mention that because that word ordinary is used, it in no way diminishes the greatness or the power of the work of God. Amen. So when we say ordinary means, we don't mean that we're diminishing the power of the work of the Spirit of God. It just simply means that God operates in a usual, normal way. He is consistent. Amen. And the working of God's Spirit in the individual is a needed miracle, but according to the pattern of Scripture and the express words of Scripture, there is a normal means by which God operates. And so the title of my message is Extraordinary Things by Ordinary Means. Extraordinary Things by Ordinary Means. And moreover, we see that it is clearly exemplified, conveyed, and specifically stated in the New Testament scriptures that salvation comes to the individual by the normality of preaching the gospel and the normality of the effectual work of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we may conclude that Works of God bear identifiable marks. There is the preaching of Christ by spirit-filled men according to Scripture, which produces the legitimate conversion of souls wrought by Holy Spirit regeneration. I know it doesn't sound normal, but that is the normal. That is the way God operates. And though we made similar acknowledgments in our previous exposition, these things are once again mentioned, not only because we see it continuing on in our text and we need to be faithful to exegete the text, but also because we are confronting an idea that exists even within churches today, or so-called churches today. 
And that is that other extra extraordinary, unorthodox means may be used of God in the reviving of dead souls and the awakening of sleeping saints. We're confronting that idea and we're saying no. Philip continues to exemplify the biblical pattern that God uses these ordinary means that we see outlined in this chapter really as a whole to do extraordinary things. I state this and as we're going to look at the body of this message, because we don't need anything other than the preaching of Christ by spirit filled men. Amen. Don't need anything else. Yeah. And listen, if that is not effectual from our perspective, we don't have the right, nor do we have the permission to do anything else. Right, brother. Amen. Again, why we say ordinary means to do extraordinary things is because, yes, conversion is an extraordinary thing. Extraordinary. While the normality is preaching the gospel, conversion is not normal. I need to say that. It's not usual among men. The vast majority of men and women on this planet remain unconverted. Am I right? And it's only a remnant that God shall save. So when a soul is brought to Christ, it is quite an unusual thing. It's extraordinary. And we need to remember that lest we allow our common sense to be overtaken by a zeal for lost souls, we need to remember these things. And this is also important to mention because we tend to struggle, at least as a pastor, we tend to struggle with discouragement and disappointment when we don't see the harvest of the souls that we would like to see. Let's remember that conversion is unusual. And indeed, there have been great spiritual movements, but those are unusual. Furthermore, those unusual, extraordinary movements where masses were brought to salvation were still caused by the same ordinary means that we will be discussing in this present exposition. Therefore, it is those ordinary means that we as ambassadors for Christ must employ to be genuinely Effective. Amen. Now, presently, we find Philip. Philip is a man, as we have seen, who is full of the Holy Ghost. Philip is departing Samaria and making his way to his next divine appointment. After being used of God to bring revival in that low land of Samaria, we have our faithful deacon continuing to obey the Lord's direction for him and continues to minister in the service of Jesus Christ. One thing that we notice about the apostles. One thing we notice about the apostles, one thing we notice about deacons in the New Testament is that they continued steadfastly in the service of God unto the end. You see, from the record of the New Testament and the record of church history, they continued to serve the Lord. They never said, I've done enough. They never said, I've paid my dues. It's time for me to retire in the service of Christ. No, the work of spreading the gospel, the work of evangelism is never done. We must always continue to go forth to sow the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here then is the ordinary formula for the evangelist to employ. Obedience to go and to the preaching of Christ according to scripture. Amen. Amen. Now also when we speak of the ordinary means, we need to acknowledge and take into account that the days following Pentecost in those days were different. Because there are some things that we see in this book that are extraordinary that we don't see today. But the principles that are on display have not changed. You see, in those days, the apostolic gifts were in effect. And we talked about that. 
And as we've mentioned in previous expositions, they were only gifts that were given to the apostles and those to whom the apostles personally passed on. So those who were touched and endowed with as Philip and others, the apostles passed on. They had these gifts. And we talked about the difference between apostolic gifts and spiritual gifts. And so Philip was one of those whom the apostles gave these extraordinary gifts. These apostolic gifts have ceased. However, as we have also mentioned, the pattern is still still the same. Because we do not have apostolic gifts does not mean, as some accuse us, that we do not preach the power and the working and the activity of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is still very much active. In fact, if he was not active, not one soul would ever come to salvation. And so we need to fully assert that he is very much present and involved. And without the Spirit of God, there's no movement of God. He is the agent of God on this earth. And we need to acknowledge that. Sometimes we get we get so formal about what we say and what we do that we forget that nothing that we can say, no matter how well we can say it, no matter how loud we can preach it, nothing that we say will will ever have any effect if it is not used of the Holy Spirit. And so let's look at two things here today. Let's look at the obedience to go and then the preaching of Christ. Verses 26 through 29, Acts chapter 8. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he rose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, and a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. So here our portion of scripture begins by stating that God told Philip where to go. God said, go to to Gaza, go to that desert. And he did so by way of his angel. And then when he gets there in verse number 29, we have, as it seems, God himself audibly speaking unto Philip. And there is no reason to believe that this was anything but the audible voice of God, because we're going to see in the next chapter that the audible voice from God bellows from heaven and knocks Saul off his feet. And as we said, these gifts have ceased. So what do we do with this? Does God still speak audibly? Does God still speak in dreams or visions to his people? Well, now it's important that we mention that the New Testament hadn't been written yet. What people knew was from the verbal testimonies of the apostles. And as we see here from the Old Testament scriptures, that's what they knew. And this is why, again, the sign gifts are unnecessary for us today. This is why direct and verbal instruction of God is not needed because God has given us his written word, which is, according to the scriptures, actually far better than what God gave the prophets of old when he did speak to audibly to them. And so one could just make the argument for cessationism and just say, listen, we don't need it because God has already spoken it. And God would never contradict his own word because he is voracious and immutable. So why would he speak audibly? Of course, he could if he wanted to. And so we have the completed canon of divinely inspired scripture breathed out by God himself. We need nothing else, dear souls. And if the apostle Peter 
could state that he had a more sure word of prophecy than the prophets of old because of his own interaction with Christ, how much more can we say that we have a more sure word because we have all of the writings of the apostles together? You see, Peter had a better word than what the prophets had, and we have a better word than what Peter had. Second Peter 1, 19-21, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light shining from a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So God does not speak to us audibly because God doesn't have to speak to us audibly. This book of Acts has been written and preserved so that God does speak to us. But it is through this written word that we may hear God. <clears throat> that being said, his word, his commands are how God leads us. You see, we don't find the leading of God anywhere else outside of this word. And if we are led by anything other than this word... Hear me, we will assuredly be led astray. Amen. Amen. It's very important that we acknowledge and apply this truth. And though we mention it often, it's for good reason that God does not lead us apart from his written word. It's not by intuition. It's not by feeling. It's not by experience. Now, listen, while God may give us, God gives us instinct. And as we're going to note, he leads us by acts of providence that we need to be sensitive to acknowledge. But he will not lead us contrary to his word. Amen. And you say, well, you overemphasize that. You tell us all of the time, don't be led of your, your feelings. We get it. Not necessarily. Listen, some things some just don't get. <laughs> And, and, and they are led away by their own feelings and emotions and experiences, regardless of how many times you tell them. Now listen, we can get away with a whole lot. We can accomplish much of our own will by soothing our own consciences and the consciences of those whom we love. When we listen to our in intuitions, when we follow our hearts, when we follow our feelings and mistake them for the leading of the Holy Spirit of God. Listen, we need to be cautious about our impulses and we must certainly be cautious of using such language as this. God told me. I have heard that time and time again. Well, God is speaking to me. God is telling me. But it's something that contradicts his word. Listen, just because we feel a certain way, just because it seems that God has opened a door of opportunity... We must test that opportunity or that feeling against Scripture. Now listen, I need to say this as well. I keep looking at that clock, but that clock is broken. <laughs> if it was a mirror, maybe I wouldn't look at it so much. This doesn't deny, let me say this, this doesn't deny that God mysteriously directs and that God doesn't orchestrate scenarios in our lives in order for us to accomplish His will. Because he clearly does. God places people in our paths. He, he, he leads us into certain situations. He gives us affections. He directs us to certain fields of service. And what I'm saying is that, that, that that's not what I'm saying here. 
What this simply means is we don't lean upon our impulses and feelings because those feelings and those impulses can be wrong. We have to test them against Scripture. And so if it is of God, it will not violate another principle of Scripture. So I say that to also say this, as we look at Philip going and preaching, being directed by God, this command given to Philip is a command given to us all. He says, you go and you preach. Is this not the command that is given to all of us? Friends, God calls each of us, not just those who occupy the office of pastor or deacon. God calls each of us to be evangelists. This is clear by the word of God, and we must obey it. This is the ordinary means by which God dispenses his grace to others. And that is by the obedience of his children to do as he commands and go to a lost world. By his act of divine providence, God brought Philip into the life of this Ethiopian. And by God's divine providence, he brings us into the lives of others and others into our lives. Philip joins himself to this chariot of the eunuch and he engaged him. You see, let me ask you this question. When was the last time you engaged someone with the gospel? I'm not speaking about random encounters at the grocery store, but there has there been someone whom God has brought into your life or God seemingly brought you into someone's life and you've not yet engaged them with the gospel. Now, we don't have to wait for a supernatural feeling. We don't have to wait for a voice from heaven because the word of God tells us to give them the gospel. Now, we may employ wisdom as to the timing of our approach. But is it on our mind to do it? Philip, it says in verse number 27, arose and went. And so he meets this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, who was this man? Well, he was obviously a man of great influence, as we see in our text here. He was a great influence, and he had a position of great honor in the Ethiopian kingdom. It says in verse number 27, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure. And so this was an important man here. He was a man of influence and honor and trusted by the queen to be in charge of her treasure. And he was a eunuch. Now, what is a eunuch? Well, according to one source, a eunuch was a man who had been castrated for the purpose of trusted servitude in a royal household. A king would often castrate his servants to ensure they would not be tempted to engage in carnal activity with others in the palace, specifically the royal harem, or to prevent their plotting and overthrow because eunuchs were incapable of setting up a dynasty of their own. Eunuchs have been employed in many civilizations, including the ancient Middle East, ancient Greece and Rome, China, Korea, and Thailand. It doesn't sound like a very fun job, but it was actually a very honorable thing if you were chosen to be this type of servant. And so it's interesting that Philip had just preached to the deplorables of Judea, and now he preaches to the affluent of Ethiopia. This man was an affluent person. Brethren, the rich need the gospel just as much as the poor. The moral need the gospel just as much as the immoral. 
The ordinary means of preaching and receiving the gospel is prescribed for both Jew and Gentile, the small and the great, the rich and the poor. No one soul is to be more important than another in the eyes of men. We are to be indiscriminate in our gospel initiations. We are to, to be quick to share the word with the homeless as we are the affluent. And Philip tells us, Philip exemplifies this in one chapter of the Bible where he goes to Samaria, those who were hated by the Jews, those who were, who were looked down upon by others. And then he goes to this Ethiopian nobleman who is an official in the queen's kingdom. And so we have that exemplified. Now, notice in our text, the scriptures tell us that this nobleman was returning home after having come to Jerusalem. Why was he in Jerusalem? This is fascinating here. These little caveats, these details, they, they speak so much to us. It says, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. What was an Ethiopian doing in Jerusalem worshiping? That's a significant detail. We need to acknowledge that fact. And then when we couple it with the text that we see reading, we see something very fascinating. So he had an Ethiopian in Jerusalem to worship, and he has a copy of the word of God. And so it seems apparent that this Ethiopian was a Jewish proselyte. That is one who was converted to Judaism, who had been in the city in observation of a Jewish feast. Because we know that they were there, right? Because at Pentecost, when the gifts of tongues, the gift of tongues were given, every man heard in his own language. And so there were people from the outside of Judea, there were people from northern Africa, there were people from Ethiopia who were Jewish converts who converged on the city for the feasts. And so here was a man who was leaving worship. John Gill writes, hence he seems to have been either a Jew by birth or rather a proselyte to the Jewish religion and had been at Jerusalem at one of their annual feasts, the Passover, Pentecost, or Tabernacles, to worship the God of Israel whom he believed to be the only true God. I believe he was a proselyte because when he quotes Isaiah here, he's quoting from the Septuagint. Of course, the writer would be doing that as well. But we're going to see why this is significant as it concerns the text that he was reading. This man was exposed to Jerusalem and he already acknowledged Jehovah as God. So that's important to mention. Something that also must be underscored in all of this is the sovereignty of God in the situation. Listen, here, here this is good. God prepared, equipped, and directed the sower. And God prepared the soil. You see, God was working on both ends in directing Philip to go from Jerusalem unto Gaza, and he was working in the Ethiopian. God had brought this man to Judaism in order to take him further. He was almost there. Furthermore, as Philip drew near, the passage tells us that the eunuch was reading the word of God. And scripture makes it clear that this was no random encounter, but it was a divine appointment. See, God made the appointment in eternity and his spirit had already been at work in this eunuch for quite some time. I like that. Amen. Friends, let us never forget that God has his divine appointments. God is at work on both ends. And sometimes, though it may seem that God's work is very slow, God's work is always methodical. 
This man was in Jerusalem. He knew the one and true living God, but God didn't fully reveal himself just yet. He was observing the law. It's evident that the law brought him where he finally needed to be. And listen, many times God reveals himself to people over the course of a long period of time. As we know, the law which the Ethiopian had been apparently observing is meant to bring us to Christ. The old covenant ordinances were always set in place to progressively reveal the Messiah. And so listen, understand, if you are praying for that lost loved one and you say, well, how in the world can they hear the word of God preached? How can they, they, they not understand? How can it not be effectual? Take heart that God may be doing a slow work in them. God has to work on both ends. And as we're going to see, this brings sanity to evangelism. Indeed, God has a, a people chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world. But his ordinary means of bringing those people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is human instrumentality. Listen, there are those who would accuse us of fatalism or, or ask why evangelize if God has ordained these things to be so. But the simple answer to that is they must hear the gospel to be saved. And how shall they hear without a preacher? Right. This man, he says, do you know who this scripture is talking about? And he says, how shall I know except somebody tell me? Because that's the means by which our sovereign, holy, eternal, infinite, matchless, omnipotent God chooses to use. And that's humbling for us. It's humbling to be able to stand before you today and have the honor and the privilege of preaching this Christ crucified and risen again. Amen. So that God is doing a work and, and softening and fertilizing your soil may one day bring his spirit upon you and regenerate you in an unusual way because of the normal everyday weekend and week out preaching of the word of God. Amen. That's what God does. I, I pray that it's one of yours, your divine appointments today. But if it's not, we'll preach again next week. And next week and next week. And let God do his wonderful work. And we're not going to do anything different. God, listen, is a personal and an interactive God. And we are created in his image. We are blessed and humbled to be used of God as heralds of his gospel. And it is through that means by which men are saved. Did not Jesus set the example when he told the disciples that he needed to go through Samaria? They said, well, why go through Samaria? Because he had a divine appointment with a woman at a well in whom God was already doing no work. But in his all-wise providence directed Jesus and directed that woman but it wasn't until Jesus spoke the word that she was saved. You see, that's the means by which God uses. So that's easy to rec reconcile the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man in this matter. Amen. Go and preach. God does the work, but you preach because God uses you. And heaven will reveal to what degree he uses us. Amen. And why I say this brings sanity to evangelism is because... <laughs> This teaches us two important things. First of all, while we are instruments of God's of God to preach the gospel, ultimately it's not up to us. I've had people tell me, I don't I don't witness because I'll mess it up. Listen, understand, it is not our mental acumen. 
It is not our eloquence of speech. Thank God. It is not our ability to even clearly explain the gospel. That's all up to God. Secondly, God's purpose for the heralding of the gospel may not be to save that individual, but it may be to add to their condemnation. And you say, I can hear the silent gasps in your heart. But understand, this is God's business, not ours. So, so let's not, let's not, what shall we then say is their unrighteousness with God, God forbid. It's not a consideration that we like to acknowledge. I don't like to acknowledge, but it is a scriptural truth. Consider the rich man and Lazarus. God in his sovereign providence brought these two men into each other's lives for God's purpose. Let me read Luke 16, 23 through 31. And in hell he lifted up his eyes. This is the rich man being in torments. And he seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And no amount of dramatic emphasis from the pulpit can match how this man cried out to, to Abraham. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in my lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed. So that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Oh, if I could pass and bring those souls of departed, lost relatives. That gulf and get them, I would. But you can't do it. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto them, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Listen, as we said, one did rise from the dead. They still didn't listen. Amen. But sometimes the, the preaching of the gospel is used at judgment to say, you heard it, yet you rejected it. Also, we have Isaiah 55, 8 through 11. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as had the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth, and it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I send it. God's word will accomplish what he pleases every single time. So we have to obey and go. Go. Find the people. And then what, what, what must we do? Well, we find that in verses 30 through 40. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? He said, How can I accept some man should guide me? 
And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shearer. So he opened not his mouth and his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this of himself or some other man. And then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And so the second point, we go, obey, and go, and we preach Jesus. We preach Jesus. It's actually very simple, right? And so the portion of the scripture, and we're going to turn there in a moment, the portion of the scripture that the Ethiopian was reading is significant. Let me tell you why it's significant. This is why it's important if you can delve into Customs and especially Judaism in their understanding in that day in the ancient Near East. It's important to have a, a, a little bit of knowledge of that because it adds really color and greater understanding to what you're, what and the why is that we see here. This man had just left Jerusalem. He had just left the feasts and the synagogues, right? They would receive the teaching of the Torah, right, and the synagogues. He then opens his own copy of God's word and notice what passage he's reading. He's reading Isaiah 53. And why this is significant is actually revealed in the question they asks Philip in verse number 34. Who's he talking about, Philip? Because according to the Jews, this difficult passage for them to reconcile had nothing to do with Messiah. You see, now imagine that Ethiopian for a moment. And I like to do this. I like to place myself in the position of the person. Maybe he had heard something spoken in the synagogue about this passage that led him to think, wait a minute, that can't be right. Perhaps as he is bringing his offering to the temple and he's also hearing whispers of Christ in the air or even he heard maybe Peter or James or John thunder their messages in person because they were doing that every day in the synagogues. Remember, Jerusalem was buzzing with Christianity. Maybe as he looked to the rituals and the, the scriptures and he heard the name of Christ mentioned that he was beginning to connect the dots. He begins to study for himself. Now, again, much of this is conjecture, but I would argue that this man didn't spend time in Jerusalem and not hear the name Jesus. You, you couldn't. I mean, you're, you're talking about 3,000 saved, then 5,000 saved, and you've got James and John and Peter thundering the gospel. You've got their reputation. Hey, these these guys were just in jail for it. They were warned, but they're out here the next day. You, you couldn't walk through Jerusalem in that day and not hear the name Jesus. You couldn't walk through Jerusalem and not hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so now you have this man. He's observing his rituals. He's observing his, his religion. He's hearing the word of Christ. He's looking to the sacrifice. And he takes his copy of God's word and he's looking at it. And he's reading the scriptures. He was studying for himself. Friends, maybe be reminded of the importance of studying scripture and maybe be reminded to test what we are seeing and hearing by the word of God. May we be careful to examine the religious works that we see, the traditions that we adhere to, even some of the things that we've already been taught and practiced. 
and search the word of God to be sure that we are engaging in truth. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a worker that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And though the passage seems to be clearly Isaiah 53 to us, speaking of the Messiah, because we can look back and see, oh yeah, you don't figure that out. <laughs> You're blind, which people are. The Jews taught that Isaiah 53 couldn't be about Messiah because they didn't teach that a Messiah was coming to die, that he was coming to reign. And he does. The Jews taught that this passage was about one of three people. Some Jews taught that Isaiah was speaking about himself. That's why the Ethiopian says what he says. Who's this about? Is the prophet speaking of himself? Because some rabbis would teach this was a that this was about Isaiah and his suffering because Isaiah did suffer. Some taught that this was about Israel as a nation personified because the nation would suffer. Others taught that it was Josiah. And so, but none of them taught that it was Messiah. And so this man, he's, he's maybe he's like, well, Gamaliel, is he right? Is Hillel right? Who's right about this? So, so what do you say, Philip? And so Philip runs up to him, eager to tell him what this passage was all about. Philip says, do you know who this is talking about? Says, How can I except someone tell me? Imagine him saying, well, I've heard this and I've heard that. But can someone just give me a clear answer to which a simple uh, Philip essentially says, I'm glad you asked. And he preached Jesus. Look over to Isaiah 53. Let's read this passage. <clears throat> Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground, and he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. I, I can imagine Philip going to verse 1 and saying, Listen, this is the word of God. This is the extended arm of God bringing to you an understanding of what this is all about. Man spoken of in verse two is seen by the Mr. Eunuch. It's, 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 he seemed to be a common man among men, is he not? Mr. Ethiopian, I say Mr. because even though he was a eunuch, he's still a Mr. <laughs> is a Mr. Ethiopian this? This Jesus of Nazareth about whom Jerusalem is buzzing, he has sprung up from the root of, of Jesse. He was a, a common carpenter from an unseemly town. Even his first disciples upon hearing him said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? But Jesus came and he didn't arrive in a royal chariot. He, he, was, he was born in a stable by a virgin and laid in a manger, raised up to be a poor carpenter's son. There's nothing about him that seemed desirable. And he grew up when he began to preach the word of God, when people began to follow him. Notice this, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And when people began to follow him, when he began to perform miracles, men despised him. And sir, listen, Mr. Ethiopian, men still despise him. And it is evident by their abuse toward his disciples and toward his people. 
He was a man of, of many sorrows. Listen, he, he knew what grief was. Not only did his disciples turn from him, uh, one disciple turned him in for 30 pieces of silver. Another most trusted disciple denied him in his worst moment. The night of his arrest, he was, listen, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because the night of his arrest, he prayed in the garden and he was so overwhelmed by the stress of the agony of the cross that he swept blood in his three field this is he. This is not Isaiah. This is not Israel. This is not Josiah. And this is Jesus. Amen. And at his arrest, because men hated him, his disciples fled. You've heard of the crucifixion. Well, yes, I have. Because, listen, I just got back from Judea. On the cross, he was alone. But you see in this passage what he accomplished when he died upon that cross, sir. And why? Look at verses 4 through 5. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. You see, he, he did this so that his people could be saved. And as, listen, as a Jew, listen, you are, you are familiar with that word iniquity, are you not, sir? See in this verse that God placed the iniquity of all of us upon Jesus. That's why the crucifixion. That's why he could not be charged with any crime. That's why even the, the governor, Pilate, said that there's no fault in him. He was innocent in order to bear the iniquity of us all. And this is why he went to the cross. Verse number six, because all we like sheep have gone astray. Listen, we are sinners. We are exiled from God. He was afflicted. By his stripes, we are healed. Consider that for a moment. The innocent sacrifice so that you could be forgiven by God, Mr. Ethiopian. Furthermore, as a Jew, you understand that a lamb needs to be slaughtered, right? So that you can have atonement. But clearly, what, what do we see here in verse number seven? He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. It was him. This was the Lamb of God brought to you, uh, for, to God to be slaughtered. And when he stood before his shears, he, he didn't raise a voice in opposition. Who would do this? He willingly went to this cross. They didn't take his life from him. They didn't wrestle him to the ground. He didn't struggle when they came to arrest him. And though, understand, sir, though he could have called 10,000 angels to deliver him from the pain of the cross, he stayed on it for six hours because it's by his stripes that you can have healing. Amen. This is Jesus that Philip preached to him. See that all of your Jewish ritualism, all of your religion converged upon him and you need no more sacrifice for sin. Listen, that sacrifice that you brought to the feast meant absolutely nothing. Because all his sacrifice was the only full atoning sacrifice. Mr. Ethiopian, it's always been pointing to him. It's always been about him. He died. And the scriptures tell us that the man of Isaiah 53, notice what it says. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. He made his grave with the wicked. Did you know you've heard of the crucifixion, sir? Did you know that there were two other men up there on crosses with him? 
Did you know that they were thieves? They were, they were, they were criminals. And to die a, a, a death upon a cross is to die the death of a criminal. And he made his grave with the wicked who knew no sin. So that you might be made the righteousness of God. Amen. And, and listen, see the details of this prophecy, sir. It says with the rich, he, made, he had a grave with the rich. Did you know that when they took him off of the cross, that a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, allowed him to be laid in his tomb? You cannot deny the truth of the scripture. Amen. You cannot deny that this word is talking about this man. I don't know. I can imagine this Ethiopian. Again, it's not about experience, but I can imagine the eyes of this Ethiopian beginning to open. And he said, there's something to this Jesus, those masses that were, that were preaching him, these men who are willing to suffer a bunch, and these men who are willing to go to jail. There ought to be something here. Yeah. Could you imagine anyone? Jesus was, was scoffed and ridiculed, and he died as a criminal would die. Why would he do this, Mr. Ethiopian? Because of his love and dedication for the Father and for the people of the Father. This he did, buried in a rich man's tomb. Rich man's tomb. Now, sir, when you offer your offering, what are you trying to do? You're trying to please God. The Bible says here in Isaiah 53 that you have in your hand, sir, that it pleased the Lord to bruise him, that he has put him to grief. See, this is what God was pleased with. Listen, you cannot please the Father for only Jesus pleased the Father because it pleased Him to bruise the Son. His soul, as we see there, it goes on. He made His soul an offering for sin, so you don't need any more offerings. Moreover, because He did this, He's going to see the results of it. He shall see the travail of His soul and He shall be satisfied. And by this knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities. You see, he shall see the travail of his soul. What does that mean? That means that he's going to come out of all of this. Listen, sir, there's buzzing in Jerusalem, right? Because many were eyewitnesses to the fact that this same Jesus rose from the dead. Did you happen to see him? Maybe you saw him. He was seen of the apostles. He walked the streets for 40 days. I, I tell you that this Messiah is alive. That he resurrected from the tomb. Caesar can't deny it. The Sanhedrin can't deny it. Herod can't deny it. And he rose again. Because God accepted the payment of sin. And death has no claim over him. You see how it says, sir. That he shall divide the spoil. This means that, that he has a people. That's me. He has a people whom he will save. Because he paid their debt upon the cross. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. And now the Ethiopian is beginning to see, ah, that offering I offered, that I've been offering, that I've been converging upon Jerusalem all of this time, he's connecting the dots. Amen. He can save them. Why? Because he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. It wasn't a scapegoat, sir. It was Jesus. And he makes intercession, as it says there, making intercession for the transgressors. Mr. Ethiopian, do you know what he was doing on that cross? He was interceding for you. Amen. He was taking your place. Furthermore, 
Where did he go? He was resurrected. He was seen for 40 days. Where did he go? Well, he ascended in a cloud to heaven where he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, interceding for us today. Amen. Listen, you may not see him walking on the streets of Jerusalem, Mr. Ethiopia, but I'm telling you how you can be with him again on the streets of the New Jerusalem. Brethren, Philip preached Jesus. Amen. We must preach Jesus. That's the only news that we must hear to be saved. That Jesus, born of a virgin, made in the likeness of men, but God incarnate, bore the curse of sin upon the cross and suffered its shame and reproach with joy before him. That he took the full brunt of God's wrath against sinful men. That he paid sin's debt by shedding his blood, making good on the law. That he died and put sin's curse to death. And that he rose again, proving that he accomplished that feat, being the first of many brethren to be raised in new life. Amen. And that he is seated on the right hand of the throne of God until he makes his enemies his footstool. Listen. Wow, that is extraordinary. That news is the ordinary news that can do extraordinary things. Why preach anything else? Listen, there's nothing better. It cannot be taught. What what else is there to say? I couldn't fathom. I couldn't create. I could, my innovation and my ingenuity and my creativity, the best among men in that field, the best writer could never write a better story. That's the best thing to do. So what else are we going to preach? Psychology? Here's psychology in a nutshell. You're all crazy. (laughs) And you need Jesus. And I can imagine the zeal of the Ethiopian in that moment. Notice what happens. Where am I at? And as they went on their way, verse number 36, they came on a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? So this Ethiopian, they go on their way, the Ethiopian sees water and has some sense that to enter into this covenant or this new system that he's discovered, there must be a baptism. Now, why? Well, he probably heard of John's baptism, no doubt, but remember, he was also a Jewish proselyte. Did you know that in order to become a Jewish proselyte, one had to be ceremonially cleansed with water because Gentiles were unclean. The act of baptism was actually not foreign to the Jews because they would be immersed to be cleansed. The proselytes would be immersed to be cleansed. Also, there were ceremonial things that a prospective proselyte would have to do in order to be cleansed. That's why he asks, what must I do? To which Philip just simply says this, Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. That's it. And notice what the eunuch says. The eunuch says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen. Because in this discourse of preaching Christ, Philip revealed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Because only God can justify Only God is perfect and sinless. So Jesus was these things, is these things. 
And so he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still. He said, stop. I got to get this water. And it says, both went into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and Philip baptized him. He was baptized, only believed and was baptized. Listen, we don't need a program. There's no rigorous ceremony to be performed. When we enter into covenant relationship with God through belief in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then we enter the waters of baptism. But what is the qualification? Nothing but faith in Christ. Amen. We understand, as we have seen in this passage, that God does the work. He uses men. Listen, he is spiritually involved. He must grant you life. But, you know, you know me. We, I, we like to get into the nitty-gritty of the doctrine of God's word, especially the doctrine of soteriology. But Philip didn't preach unto him the details of election, predestination, regeneration, adoption, sanctification. He preached crucified, Christ crucified, and then he said, do you believe? Amen. That's what he preached. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3, 36, he that believeth on the Son of the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but wrath of God abide from him. John 6, 40, and this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 1 John 5, 10 through 12, he that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made, not God hath made him a liar. Because he believeth not on the record that God gave of his son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this is the life that is in his son. And he that hath the son hath life. And he that hath not the son of God hath not life. He said, do you believe? I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Amen. That's good enough for me. And he was baptized. <clears throat> Now, so Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, they tread into the water. And the man upon his profession of faith is then immersed by the deacon. That word baptize is the word baptizo, and it means to plunge into or submerge. Yeah. Baptism is the outward display of the inward work that a man is buried with Christ in, in, in death and raised in new life to walk in that new life. That's the biblical pattern of baptism. We don't sprinkle children. They professing believers who enter into a covenant with Christ are baptized and raised in newness of life. Amen. And then notice what it says. And they were come up out of the water. The spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. That the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. Now who is it? He or Philip? Both. Yeah. Specifically the eunuch. Listen, imagine his life from then on out. Now, we don't know any more about him. You know, I've, I've been tempted to write a novel on the lives of some of these people that we see converted gloriously and perhaps what their lives looked like after that. I think of the centurion at the foot of the cross. I think of this 
eunuch here. I think of the, the, the many other, I think some of these Samaritans. You see, I don't know what his life looked like. Perhaps his new faith led him to be martyred in pagan Ethiopia. We know some, one of the apostles, I can't think of who, maybe it's Matthew, was martyred in Ethiopia. We do know that the word of God made its way to Ethiopia. Maybe the queen didn't take kindly to his newfound faith. Maybe he couldn't shut up so much about it. She sent him to prison. Or maybe there was a movement of God in Ethiopia because of him. We don't know. But we know he was changed. And it brought joy to his life. And this is what true salvation does. It brings joy. Amen. He didn't have, think about this. He didn't have to do anything anymore. Yes, as we learn, faith without works is dead. We understand that. We're talking about true saving belief. True saving faith. That's it. Faith alone. You don't have to do anything. He didn't, listen, he didn't have to make that long trek back and forth to Jerusalem again year after year. Jesus paid sin's full debt and this man knew it. He didn't rely upon his dedication to law or obedience, but it was because of the obedience of one that he was made righteous. And friends, there is great cause to rejoice. Yes. That's why what Jesus did for this man, and that's what only Jesus could do for this man. Perhaps he went back to the Old Testament and he thought, can a leper change his spots or the Ethiopian his skin? Only, only Christ could change him. So he rejoiced while Philip mysteriously disappeared. And Philip, he's on this, this, this tear of traveling. And he's divinely transported by God. And then notice what we find. He, he goes away. The Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. But Philip was found at Azotus. And passing through, he preached in all the cities. Now, one more comment about this. God's taken him to these odd places. You know, Azotus was the land that once belonged to the Philistines where the ancient temple of Dagon once stood. And remember what happened to that image of Dagon when the Ark of the Covenant got there. You see, now Philip's on that very ground preaching the Ark of Christ. You remember, people, the history of this land. You remember when the presence of God got here, what it did to that pagan temple. I say unto you that Christ has come. He is present. His spirit is here. Listen, then he reached Caesarea, which was a land teeming with Jewish rabbis. But what's he doing? He's continuing everywhere he goes, wherever God takes him. He's continuing to, even in unseemly and hostile places, preach Jesus. Amen. And this is what we all must continue to do. And we're privileged to do it. God may even take us to unseemly or even hostile places, but Keep preaching Christ and do this. Preach Christ as Philip preached Christ. According to the scriptures. Amen. See, he took in Isaiah 53. They were preaching Christ from scripture. There's nothing new. There's no other way. Do not preach anything but Christ alone, according to scripture alone, and continue to do so faithfully. Amen. That's the ordinary and as I said, that word doesn't apply simple. Or that it is not miraculous. 
That means that this is the usual normal means by which God brings about conversion in the lives of people. The ordinary means that ordinary individuals can preach. And God can use it to do extraordinary things. We don't think it's extraordinary. You don't have a good, fast grip on who you are by nature and who God is. Amen. And God be pleased with the message. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you so much.